From WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, I'm Byron Williams, and this is The Public Morality. Today on The Public Morality, we speak with political reporter Bob Buckley about the recent Republican convention. And after that, Rebecca Vallis joins us from the Center for American Progress to discuss the plight of disabled inmates. That's next on The Public Morality. Welcome to the Public Morality. The Republican convention just wrapped up in Cleveland, and now the Democrats are underway. How conventions may appear on camera may not be the way they are on the convention floor. To fill this gap is Bob Buckley. Buckley is a veteran political reporter for WGPH, a Fox News affiliate in Greensboro, North Carolina, who covered the Republican convention. I spoke with him over the weekend as he now prepares for the Democratic convention in Philadelphia. Bob Buckley, welcome to The Public Morality. What a pleasure to be able to be on here. Having listened for a while, I'm glad to be part of it. Well, you interviewed me not too long ago, so now we, <laughs> we, get, right. to, we get to return the tables. <laughs> yeah. I think that's the right way to put it, return the tables. <laughs> no pun intended. Um, you know, counting, um, as I believe you're in, you're in Philadelphia right now, about to cover the Democratic convention. Is that correct? That is correct. Okay. So counting the, Democratic, the upcoming Democratic convention but at the time we speak, um, how many conventions have you covered in total? Well, let's see. It started in 2000, uh, did 2000, 2004, 2012, and this one. So this will be my eighth. Uh, I was scheduled to do the ones in 2008, but that's when the uh, our station had just been sold and the recession hit and the new company just put a quash on all new spending. So I missed those two. I think that was Denver, of course, when President Obama was nominated and uh, St. Paul that year for John McCain. But I missed those two. This is my eighth. So you, so it's fair to say that you you, you have some experience this century covering uh, conventions. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, how did the recent uh, Republican convention compare with those previous GOP conventions? At least, how did this one compare to the recent one? Well, you know, I think it was it was similar. The differences are relatively subtle. I think from a big picture perspective, it's it's still a big party where the people there are having fun. You still see a lot of the famous folks walking around, just not as much star power. As you've seen, the, the, the big-time elected officials weren't there, of course. Uh, former President George Bush, former President George H.W. Bush, neither were there. The other difference, I really, is the Trump effect. Each convention takes place in a specific time, place and time in history, and that brings a context that no other convention is going to have. And this one, I think, as we've seen, is a time in which the voters in both parties are looking for someone to go to Washington and blow the place up figuratively, of course. You know, Hillary Clinton has won the Democratic nomination. She's not that candidate on that side. But that's what the Bernie folks wanted. The Bernie folks wanted someone who will come in there and change things significantly. And that's certainly what the Trump voters want. Uh, and that's, I think, what's a little bit different about this one. It was certainly, the Republican side certainly had a much more negative feel to it. It wasn't Ronald Reagan's, you know, sunny demeanor that I'm going to bring peace and prosperity back. It was much more of a things are messed up and I'm going to blow them up to fix them. You know, um, you mentioned that some of the uh, notable uh, Republican stalwarts were not there. I'm thinking you mentioned, you know, the, the Bush family. Uh, right. Certainly uh, John, Senator John McCain, Senator Lindsey Graham, um, uh, the 2012 nominee Mitt Romney, even Ohio Governor John Kasich, who ran and um, his state's host of the convention, was not there. Um, does that really matter? 
Well, I think it does. And that was the big difference. You put your finger right on the big difference. The star factor was missing at the Republican convention. If you look at the speaker lineup for the Democrats this week, you start on Monday night with Michelle Obama, uh, Bernie Sanders. Then you have President Clinton on Tuesday, uh, President Obama on Wednesday, Vice President Biden. There was next to none of that at the RNC last week. The only man who has been a Republican presidential nominee who was there was Bob Dole, who just turned 93 and was too frail to speak. They took a little picture of him in his chair. Not one of the other nominees, not Romney, not McCain, neither President Bush was there. Uh, That's not a small thing. What that demonstrates is there is a major schism between the people who have been essentially running this party for the last half century and its voting base. Republicans will either split their party to the point where it has become, will or will become a minority party at the federal level for at least a while, or they will rebuild it in a way that doesn't look a lot like it does today. It will probably look a lot more populist. Well, you know, one of the things um, that certainly, um, given your uh, experience with television, that what what it looks like to to those of us who are the viewers and what's actually going on inside can be two different things. And so uh, since you were on the convention floor, did, did you get a sense of unity inside the convention doors? Well, I guess that depends on what your expectation is. You know, if you're asking for 10,000 people to be holding hands, singing not just Kumbaya, but providing <laughs> the same policy positions, I'd say, yeah, I think you'd agree. That's a bit naive. That hasn't happened at any convention. Sure. Um, Ted Cruz, of course, had his moment last week. Uh, was both significant and quite entertaining. Um, but if the question is, will Republicans do the work necessary to get Donald Trump elected, I am beginning to think for the first time that they may. Okay. Okay. Um, and, and I guess uh, we can have a running definition here. Uh, uh, I, I think about, um, I, I covered the um, 2004 like, Democratic uh, com- convention in Boston. I was there. Right. And I remember when um, uh, a young state senator who was also uh, the candidate for the senator in Illinois gave a keynote address, and that, of course, being Barack Obama. And at the end of that convention, there were more people talking about this guy could be the first black president than we're going to go out, and I really believe we could defeat President Bush in 04. So, did you get that sense? That's kind of what I'm looking at for Unified. Did you get that type of sense? That Well, no. I mean, as we said a minute ago, um, every convention happens in its own unique time and space in history. Um, you know, among the delegates on the Republican convention, there is still a big focus on Trump and his ability to defeat Hillary Clinton. And if you, you know, were to poll those delegates, I think a majority are pretty confident that Trump will win, but you'd expect that, of course, from that group. Now, I agree with you about the sentiment leaving Boston in 2004. You mentioned I was there as well. But then I think John Kerry, you know, was a relatively weak candidate on several fronts, and Barack Obama has always been a good candidate. 2004 for the Democrats was a lot like 1976 for the Republicans. Remember, they left Kansas City thinking they nominated the wrong guy. That's true. Because Ronald Reagan gave that great speech, and but was much more magnanimous than, than Ted Cruz just was. And people in the hall were like, oh, man, we should have gone with Reagan. Uh, and, but then, you know, Barack Obama was not ready for that role in 2004. So, this, again, it's a little bit different. He was he still hadn't been elected to anything beyond the state Senate in Illinois. And by that point, he was still 42 years old. So I think what you're saying is, is accurate, that in 2004, they left thinking, wow, we have a future. But they weren't thinking about winning necessarily that election. Right. Much. But, I, again, that goes back to as much I think John Kerry has always been a very awkward candidate, in my opinion. You know, never seems to know how to relate to people, at least average voters. 
Uh, and I think he was always someone the Democrats were kind of shrugging their shoulders saying, well, this is what we got. Um, but that that was just that particular cycle for the Democrats. Well, you know, it, it just occurred to me when you when you said that. You know, I, I've read um, uh, a number of reports. It, it it sounds. I'm not. I'm not um, trying to paint it with broad strokes, but it sounds. I've heard similar um, concerns about um, Secretary of State Clinton in terms of being somewhat of an awkward candidate, um, and some of her biggest supporters would suggest that she's a much better. Uh, at governing than she actually is at right. the campaign piece. No, I think that's true. Um, she has the good fortune of running against the one candidate on the Republican side of those 17 who she has the best shot of beating, I think. I mean, if you if you had put uh, a John Kasich or uh, even Rubio turned out to be a, Marco Rubio, the Florida senator, turned out to be a, a less, I don't know the term I want to use, he wasn't nearly as good a candidate as a lot of his supporters thought he would be. But a Rubio, a Kasich, a, uh, a Jeb Bush would have been a very difficult candidate, I think, for Hillary to beat. She's lucky enough to have the one that she can without being a good candidate herself. The, the problem with Hillary Clinton, I think, for a lot of people is what is she truly for besides Hillary Clinton? Mm-hmm. You know, she'll tell you, I've been fighting for children since I was so, you know, entered public life. I don't know that that rings true with people. They see her kind of go through the motions, do the work, but in the end, it seems like what she truly believes in is Hillary Clinton. Mm-hmm. It doesn't pass and, the smell test, in other words. Right, for a lot of voters. Now, some people, I, I think, are, are very honest in their belief in her, and they think she's wonderful and does great things, and, and they sincerely believe that. It's not anything they, they think. But I think for a big chunk of the electorate, her problem is people just think everything she says is a show for her greater grandizement, even more so than it was for Bill. Mm. You know, they don't want to govern necessarily. They want to be somebody. They want to be something. What she's looking for is the day she walked through uh, the Oval Office as the first inaugurated female president. And after that, it's going to be... Did you ever see the movie The Candidate with Robert Redford? Now what? That, you know, Great talk, talk about, that, talk about that line at the very end? Now what? Now what do we do? Exactly. <laughs> so for people who haven't seen the movie, Robert Redford is this great young candidate who takes on an establishment sort of curmudgeon. Uh, he's a huge long shot. He gets to the point where he wins that election. And the closing scene is from the hallway of the hotel room. Uh, Redford's in the room with his advisors, and they look at each other and they say, now what? And I, I'm wondering if there – you know, obviously Hillary Clinton has – a plan and a platform and an idea. But I think her challenge is a lot of voters think um, that's just the hoop she has to jump through to for her real desire, which is to be somebody. Mm-hmm. Um, going back to the, con- the Republican convention for just a moment, you in the yeah. side, um, how, uh, how did it feel to you when the when the chorus of um, lock her up sort of took over the convention floor, and I remember Arizona Senator Flake um, mm-hmm. said he was uncomfortable with that kind of language, thinking that it could hurt uh, Republicans' prospects. How did it feel inside with those chants? Was it just well, yeah, I got to say, to me, the lock her up chants was the one thing that seemed to go beyond the typical fun poking, you know, that happens at these conventions. What I find is that both of these parties have long memories for the slights from the other side and are a bit amnesic about the slights that they sling. Uh, But when people talk about how divided things are today, and and they certainly are, I remind them 
that things have been worse. You know, the early 1860s, mm-hmm. seemed a bit of a high water for division in our country. Even <laughs> the 1960s were pretty bad. I remember well watching the fun, as I call it, from Grant Park during 1968 from uh, my living room a few miles to the south. Mm-hmm. Uh, writer P.J. O'Rourke, I don't know if you're familiar with him. Yes, oh, yes, yes. Well, he was a young protester who was in the park that year, uh, and he famously said that he was there to demonstrate for the poor and the downtrodden until he discovered the poor and the downtrodden had all gotten jobs at the Chicago Police Department and were beating them over the heads with nightsticks. Uh, Sounds yeah, like a PGO worker quote, yeah. <laughs> right. You know, I like I said, you know, I'm not going to pick sides with either of these candidates or these parties, but to me the one thing that if they were asking for advice from the outside is I would tell them the locker up chance maybe were fun or funny once, um, but to repeat them every night a couple of times was, it seemed to me, unseemly. And we, we mentioned him earlier, and I'd be remiss if we didn't touch on him. Um, what were your thoughts about um, Ted Cruz's uh, um, speech? Well, I don't know that he killed his professional uh, life, but he certainly did it a whole lot of damage. Um, what I've noticed is that the crowd response to things is much more pronounced in the arena than it is when I see it replayed on TV later. What you didn't get over TV was how many of the delegates were upset about Cruz for not uh, formally endorsing Trump. And a lot of these were his own delegates. And I spoke to them afterward, and that was universal among his delegates, was they were disappointed. He should have done better. There was no reason. You know, the boos, by the way, as he wrapped up his speech, drown out his voice in that arena completely. I could not hear the last three or four sentences he said the boos were so loud. And I don't ever remember seeing that at a convention. If Cruz didn't want to endorse Trump, he shouldn't. He should have politely declined his speaking role. Now, you know, for example, if Bernie Sanders didn't want to formally endorse Hillary Clinton. He shouldn't have accepted his spot at the Democratic convention this week. But I'm pretty confident he's going to endorse Hillary. He essentially already has. Cruz looked small by not doing that. Um, go ahead and have your speech. He thought he was Ronald Reagan, by the way. That's what he thought he was going to do, was repeat Ronald Reagan's 1976, you picked the wrong guy. He didn't do that. He made people think they did. Well, I don't know if they picked the right guy necessarily, but the guy who I think did the the, um, the Reagan role was Mike Pence. I think mean, Mike Pence came off as people saying, wow, you know, I was a little worried about Trump running the country, but it, supposedly it's going to be uh, Pence running it anyway, and I can I can live with this guy. He mm-hmm. was very Reagan. He was as, well, not very reagan I will say he was as close to Reagan-esque as any Republican came this past week. Mm-hmm. Which is which is odd because it is a name, uh, uh, former President Ronald Reagan, uh, is a name that invariably comes up in Republican speak. And uh, so that's ironic that you said that, that there was one candidate uh, that sort of embodied that to some, some degree. Um, but finally, um, you know, I was wondering after watching the convention, and granted, um, there's always a disconnect between television and, and, and live at these conventions. Right. Um, but— are we just simply at a place, you know, what we once thought the convention was supposed to be, as if you mean you reference 1860, what a convention was in 1860 is not what a convention was mm-hmm. in 1960. Are we just at that point again uh, that um, that that uh, where we are with conventions now is not where we were in the 20th century? I mean, there was there's really been no indication of a Trump bounce, and it may not be a, a Clinton bounce afterwards. Are they just different animals for us now? Oh, they certainly are. I think there will be a Clinton bounce. Trump bounce wasn't huge. It's what, 1% is the latest thing I've seen that he has yes. over Hillary? Yes. If you're 1% ahead coming out of your convention for the other guys, you're probably behind because Hillary will, will leapfrog him, I think, after the convention. You know, as each convention cycle passes, their significance, I think, is a live event. Uh, 
from which we introduce a candidate diminishes. Um, it is they are now essentially glorified pep rallies uh, and that become infomercials on TV. Because think about it, people under 40, as you know, as a media guy, people under 40 do not consume the news media like those over 40 do. They don't watch it live and they consume it largely edited already through either some kind of social media or some other format of, of, of a strainer, so to speak. Plus, these, these, uh, everyone today has already seen so much of the candidates before the convention happens. Their opinions are already largely set. How many people don't know yet whether they like or dislike Trump or Hillary? I, you know, yeah. if you don't, you've probably been hiding under a rock because every time they come to Raleigh or Charlotte or Greensboro, you know Fox 8 is there giving you, you know, three hours of a straight cover. We these people, we know what they believe in or don't believe in. Um, so the conventions, I'm not sure what the point is besides having a big party and 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 hearing a few speeches. I mean, do you think they change anyone's mind these days? No, no, I I, I certainly don't. I I think you I think you're absolutely right. Now I would say though, I would say this. Because you're in Philadelphia, you will not have an opportunity uh, to meet me essentially around the corner from my home in Winston-Salem uh, on Monday night when uh, Trump comes to Winston-Salem. You will not have an opportunity for us to get together that night. So Right. Well, that's true. Well, and, you know, the other thing that I noticed in Cleveland was the local media becomes – they don't become endorsers of the party, but because the Republicans were in Cleveland, there was a lot of – uh, the Republicans on TV and things they were doing, and there was a very positive vibe in the coverage. And so now say you're a, uh, a Cleveland independent or a former Democrat or a conservative, relatively conservative Democrat, and you get two or three weeks of this, hey, look, the Republicans are here. Don't we love having them here? It might soften you enough to be more open to their message. And in a state like Ohio, man, that's crucial. The problem the Republicans have is their old governor, John Kasich, is in literally open warfare with Donald Trump. He's still, very pop- he's still very popular, am I, am I correct? That's my point, is, is, you know, I think endorsements don't mean a whole lot. But if an endorsement ever did mean something, it was John Kasich this year in Ohio. He's very popular. If he were enthusiastically supporting Donald Trump, it could mean, I think, 30,000, 40,000, 50,000 votes in the state of Ohio. And that could be enough to win Ohio. Republicans have never won the White House without Ohio. Trump is killing himself by not finding some way to embrace Kasich, although the story out of the New York Times, I don't know if you saw this this week, Byron, the Times is reporting that the Trump campaign through Donald Jr. went to Kasich, or went to a senior Kasich official right after Kasich dropped out of the race in May and said, how would John Kasich like to be the most powerful vice president in history? And the Kasich people said, what do you mean? And they said, well, to run foreign and domestic policy, to which they said, so what would Donald Trump be doing? He'd be making great America great again, was the response that came back. Essentially, the point being, Trump wants to be sort of a figurehead, sort of an overseer, CEO, uh, and PR guy, and let someone else do not just a lot of the dirty work, but almost all of the dirty work. And I think that Kasich took that as a real insult, and that increased his warfare. Pence evidently seems comfortable with it, or he wouldn't be where he is right now. Mm. Well, um, as as they say that the plot thickens, we will, we will we, we yeah. will be, we will be much smarter on the, on the uh, se- uh, second or third Wednesday in November than we are today, right? We'll be a lot more uh, smart. <laughs> well, I hope so. I hope so. We never know. You know, the American people generally do the right thing. They may do the wrong thing once or twice, but they tend to see their mistakes and correct them. So, um, and I'm sure about half the country thinks electing uh, Hillary Clinton would be a mistake, and I'm sure at least half the country thinks electing Donald Trump would be a mistake. Let's hope we get together and work it out somehow. We tend to, we tend to do that. Bob Buckley, I want to thank you for taking the time to be on the public morality today, sir. It is an honor, Byron. I appreciate it. We'll see you back in the triad. I look forward to it. Take care. That was Bob Buckley.
Coming up, my discussion about the plight of disabled inmates with Amy Vallis from the Center for American Progress. To put it bluntly, America's four-decade experiment of mass incarceration has been an abject failure. Little is done to prepare individuals behind bars for their eventual release. Yet we are surprised when two-thirds return to jail or prison. Over the past six decades, there has been a widespread closure of state mental hospitals and other facilities that serve people with disabilities. As a result, they have become collateral damage of a failed incarceration policy that has implemented a one-size-fits-all motif whereby the door is locked and the key is conveniently discarded. To discuss this plight is Rebecca Vallis. Vallis is the Managing Director for the Poverty to Prosperity Program at the Center for American Progress in Washington, D.C. She is also the host of the weekly radio broadcast, Talk Poverty. Recently, Vallis wrote an article entitled The Mass Incarceration of People with Disabilities that I encourage all to read. Rebecca Vallis, welcome to The Public Morality. Thank you so much for having me on. It's good to be here. Good, good to have you back. You know, for, for the purposes of our discussion, the, the frame uh, uh, this, this uh, dialogue, when discussing disabled inmates, specifically in the pieces you wrote, whom are you exactly referring to? Well, you know, it's a broad definition, right? And and that's because disability is a broad topic. And you can define it a lot of different ways. But for purposes of, of having a conversation about uh, people with disabilities who are behind bars and prisons and jails, which is what the report talks about, um, we're talking about people who have physical disabilities, people who have mental or cognitive impairments, as well as people who have mental illness and struggle with mental health challenges, and then also people who have sensory or communication disabilities like blindness or deafness. Now, now the last time um, we had you on, I, I think we were discussing uh, mental health as it contributed, as a contributing factor toward poverty, as I recall. Would you say that this uh, latest piece that you wrote uh, really reflects a more acute extension of that last discussion? It's a big piece of it. I mean, you know, uh, to really understand how we got here and why we have a dramatic overrepresentation of people with disabilities behind bars and prisons and jails, you really have to start with a little bit of history. And a big part of the history here is a movement called deinstitutionalization. Um, the past 60 years have seen widespread closure of state mental hosp hospitals um, and other institutions that used to serve people with disabilities in large numbers. And this is a, uh, a tremendously positive development, right? Serving people in the community as opposed to in institutions um, is widely regarded as, as really a step in the right direction. Um, but unfortunately, the shift to community-based care and away from institutional-based care wasn't accompanied by the public investment that was necessary to make sure that community-based alternatives were available for those folks who were no longer being housed in institutions. So as a result, 
While people with disabilities are happily no longer living in large numbers in institutions, many have been swept up into the criminal justice system, and many of those individuals are people with mental illness and mental health challenges. And so as a result, what we've seen is that the United States has effectively traded one form of mass institutionalization for another. And this is an incredibly timely conversation, not just because of the national debate around criminal justice reform that's continuing to gain momentum, both at the federal level and in states and cities across the U.S. It's also incredibly timely because as we're speaking, um, the U.S. is commemorating the 26th anniversary of the Americans with Disabilities Act. Um, And a big piece of that was making sure that people with disabilities have access to and are included in um, uh, every walk of of daily life. And uh, being locked up behind bars and in prisons and jails, um, it, it doesn't really get you there. In your previous answer, when, when you suggested that um, the United States has traded one mass, car- mass incarceration for another, um, I remember back in 1992 during the presidential campaign that um, then-candidate Bill Clinton left the campaign to oversee an uh, execution of a gentleman who had an IQ of around 60. And that was like sort of evidence that he was tough on crime. Have we have we moved at all from that at least? Oh, that's it's a horrible story, and it's it's one worth telling, right? For purposes of sort of reflecting on how far we've come and how much this debate has changed. I think a big piece of why we have seen so much progress, so much momentum um, building uh, on both sides of the aisle, really across the political spectrum, for um, overhauling our nation's broken criminal justice system and building a fair and equitable justice system in its place. A big piece of that is really having moved past tough on crime and moved into a new era of wanting to be smart on crime. And a piece of that um, is doing the right thing because it's the right thing to do, right? Not locking people up um, in the numbers that we are and throwing away the key um, uh, because it's it's immoral. Many people of faith believe that it violates principles of faith or of, of their religion. Um, but it's also, um, in many ways, the smart thing to do. And that's because uh, of the tremendous amount of money that the United States is throwing away year after year, $80 billion a year just on mass incarceration when it comes to our prison and jails, that doesn't even take into account the cost of our criminal justice system writ large when you look at courts and law enforcement. Um, When you start to add all those other pieces in, you're talking more on the order of $260 billion a year, maintaining this massive, bloated, um, ineffective criminal justice system that is is, uh, destroying lives uh, and and breaking up families and ruining communities. Um, So I, I think Yes, we've moved a tremendous amount um, from where we were in the in the early and mid-90s when what's called the Crime Bill was signed into law in 1994, which kicked off a lot of uh, the problems that we've, we've seen in the decades since. And I think we've moved into a, a much more thoughtful, much more evidence-based, and much more humane conversation, which is part of why we at the Center for American Progress wanted to put out this report looking at the need to end the mass incarceration of people with disabilities, because this must be part of that national conversation. Well, it seems to me that the trend, uh, uh, again, dating myself here, but I remember when Richard Nixon ran for president, um, he ran on a law and order ticket, which um, came on the heels of the civil rights movement, and it sort of was a reactionary push for this law and order. And then then we moved into the... uh, 
tough on crime, which I never understood because it, it always assumed that the other people were soft on crime. If you're tough on crime, as opposed to you're soft on crime, and some of that was with the with with the urban drug epidemic, and so it became reactionary. But at some point, and and I'm not going to uh, criticize those those laws. In the past, I understand the reactionary reasons for their being. But once we create laws, and I'm wondering if you have you seen this in your work, do we create laws for a particular time, and then we do we just forget to check on these laws or review them or see where they're at uh, with the public at the, in the moment, or we just say that's it, we've we've solved that and just move forward? It's a great question. I mean, I th- I think that that's that's the case not just within the realm of of the criminal justice system, right? I mean, when it comes to public policy, often what it takes is a wake up call. Often what it takes is either one particular incident or analysis that puts numbers and facts and and people's lives on the page and says, wait a second, we we really can't afford to do nothing any longer. Um, And and I think with respect to the criminal justice conversation, it's been a combination of the two. It's been both the realization by policymakers across the political spectrum that we literally cannot afford the cost of doing nothing, that that, uh, not just at the federal level, but that states and localities are being crushed financially by the economic burden of maintaining these bloated prisons and jails, um, that it's something that they, they literally cannot afford, that their budgets can no longer afford to maintain. Um, but on the other hand, it, it's also been, you know, and contemporaneous with that kind of numerical um, and cost-related uh, uh, wake-up call, there's been a series of um, events that have really um, brought a national spotlight onto this conversation and have made it one that people are no longer able to ignore. And I think that that is um, uh, nowhere more true than in the policing aspect of this conversation, um, uh, uh, the deaths of um, Freddie Gray and Eric Garner, um, and also I'll name two other individuals who, who don't get nearly as much airtime, Christiana Coinyard, Robert Ethan Saylor. All of these individuals lost their lives during interactions with police that went horribly, horribly wrong. But one piece of this conversation that hasn't really emerged, hasn't broken through, is the disability connection. All four of those individuals are people who lost their lives during interactions with police, um, but who are people with disabilities. Um, and their disability came into play in those interactions. Um, and I'll tell you a little bit of the story about Robert Ethan Saylor. Um, uh, Robert Ethan Saylor was a young man, um, 26 years old, uh, from Maryland. He went to the movies with his caregiver, um, and he, he saw the movie Zero Dark Thirty, and he really liked it, and he, um, he wanted to see it again. Now, he was a young man with Down syndrome. He didn't understand fully that he needed to go and buy another ticket, and his caregiver repeated over and over, no, we've got to go buy another ticket, um, but he didn't understand. He wanted to stay in his seat, and so ultimately, the movie theater management called the police because they didn't know what to do, and the police came in, four police uh, officers came in, they ended up tackling him to the ground, Uh, they ended up crushing his larynx, and the whole time his caregiver was calling out, I can defuse this situation, please don't touch him, if you touch him he will freak out, those were her words, and the police didn't listen, and he lost his life as a result of that interaction going horribly, horribly wrong in a way that was really very needless. Unfortunately, he's just one high-profile example of really a sadly commonplace occurrence, but his story needs to be part of our connecting these dots, right? There's been a lot of discussion after
after the past few weeks and the tragic events in Baton Rouge and Minneapolis and, and Dallas that have rightly reignited the national conversation around policing reform and police community relations. But one uh, critical statistic that is entirely missing from that policing conversation is that people with disabilities make up one-third to one-half of all police-involved fatalities. Um, and, and in fact, according to an investigation by the Washington Post, fully one in four people who were fatally shot by police in 2015 were people with mental illness. So we can't leave out um, this intersection as we have this national conversation about policing. Going back to some of those, uh, some of the high-profile cases that you mentioned, as well as, as, as others that are not so high-profile, but, but the numbers you just um, uh, outlined with people with disabilities, um, I could see the contrarian uh, comment uh, saying, uh, well, Rebecca, police only have split seconds to make a decision. And in, in, in light of the current dilemma you just raised and that contrarian perspective, how do you respond to that? As, as that was sort of a justification, mean, these things happen, I guess, is, is another way to put it. How, how do you respond to that? Yeah, no, it's a great question, and I don't in any way want to say that this is an easy conversation to have. I, I think that that's reflected in the tremendously emotional um, and, and wrought um, national conversation that that, um, that not just policymakers but that people in their communities are having across the United States right now. Um, but I think that uh, it's clear um, to anyone who's been paying attention to this pattern of law enforcement-involved uh, fatalities, um, that while police may be put in difficult situations and, and they're playing an incredibly important role in keeping our communities safe and often in, in some cases have now become the targets themselves, um, as we saw, unfortunately, in Dallas um, and, and, and in Baton Rouge, um, it, there needs to be a, a very deep examination of police practices um, and specifically of use of force. When you've got situations like one that, that actually played out just last week, um, a, a young man with autism was out in the street with uh, his caregiver had followed him out from a, um, a, a center where he lives. Um, uh, he was trying to get him out of the street. The young man with autism had laid down in the middle of the street. Police responded on the scene. They ended up shooting the caregiver, and the man didn't even have a weapon. Um, uh, you can see from the video that the, the young man with autism laying in the street had a toy with him, a toy uh, car or truck of some sort of vehicle, um, but there, there was no weapon. There was no cause to shoot the caregiver, and the caregiver had put his hands up and said, I'm just trying to handle this situation. You know, if you could give me a little bit of space, I'm trying to get him out of the street. Um, when you've got those kinds of situations playing out literally every single week at this point, um, we need to have a hard conversation about what is the role of the police practices in leading to these situations. Um, and then also, um, you know, when it comes to the disability connection, uh, why aren't we just doing basic training? Training is a big piece of the solution here. It's not the panacea by any stretch, um, but we have best practices that we're watching play out in uh, localities really across the U.S. that have shown to be tremendously effective. There's a, a model of training called Crisis Intervention Team, CIT training, um, that brings together police officers with mental health and, and disability service providers um, 
And what that does is not only train police officers on how to de-escalate situations so that they don't end up using unnecessary force and, God forbid, taking someone's life unnecessarily, um, but it also it helps them b- become people who can help to, uh, to divert people with disabilities, people with mental health impairments, away from the criminal justice system and into those kinds of community-based alternatives that are, are much more um, appropriate and humane and the place that people really need to be as opposed to a jail cell. Um, so there's a lot that we know about in terms of what works, what we can do, um, and training has to be a piece of this so that we, we get out of this horrible, tragic pattern of literally every week waking up or more, waking up and seeing the news, and it's yet another person, usually a person of color, usually in a, a low-income or high-poverty neighborhood who's ended up dying needlessly because of an interaction that went wrong. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Rebecca Vallis from the Center for American Progress and also co-host of the radio weekly radio uh, broadcast Talk Poverty, and which I'm always um, tweeting out uh, some of the uh, materials that they, uh, that they produce. Great stuff on poverty if you want to know more about poverty and thinking about it more broadly than political sound bites. I strongly suggest that um, you, you go to Talk Poverty. Um, you know, in the article that, uh, which is the which is the basis for this conversation, I mean, you 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 cited the Bureau of Justice Statistics, which were really um, I, I found them just horrific. I think you sort of touched on it, but could you outline some of those things that um, that as it relates to incarceration among those with disabilities? What what are we really looking at here? Absolutely, and and I have to say the numbers are staggering, and they really they bear repeating. People behind bars in prisons in this country are nearly three times as likely, and people in jails are more than four times as likely to report having a disability than the general population. So we're talking about uh, people behind bars in prisons and jails being at least three times as likely as people not behind bars to have a disability. That is a dramatic dramatic overrepresentation um, of people with disabilities uh, behind bars in this country. Um, fully half of women in jails have a disability in the United States. Um, and as you know, we mentioned at the top of the program, we're talking about people with a range of different kinds of disabilities, from physical disabilities to mental illness. I think there's a, a broad misconception um, that the entire story is one of people with mental illness or mental health challenges. No, we're talking about people with all types of, of disabilities, everything under the sun. Um, and it, it's really, it's reached a point that is, it's not just past uh, what should be a tipping point. Um, it needs to be a, a national, um, uh, it needs to be felt with a sense of national urgency. As we have this conversation about overhauling our broken criminal justice system, almost never is disability part of what's discussed. Um, uh, the nation's experiment with mass incarceration and overcriminalization is widely recognized as a failure, um, and you know that's as evidenced in large part by the bipartisan momentum around overhauling that system. But you you almost never actually hear about the impact of the criminal justice system on people with disabilities. You do rightly hear about communities. 
of color, residents of high poverty neighborhoods, LGBT individuals, all of these populations have been incredibly hard hit. But our hope uh, at the Center for American Progress in putting out this report um, and in working with the White House on a big event that we actually held uh, just last week um, around this uh, set of issues was to shine a national spotlight on the fact that this intersection is not getting discussed, it is not being paid attention to, and if we if we have this conversation about overhauling the criminal justice system and we leave out that critical disability lens, we're going to be missing a really, really big piece of the puzzle. You know, you, you, you touched on it with, with some of the high-profile cases, uh, but I, I want to come back to something you said earlier. Um, you also cite that people in your, in your report, that people with disabilities are more likely to be victims of police violence. Say more about that, please. So um, that's absolutely right. I think, you know, broadly, when um, conversations take place about guns and the need for gun violence prevention, and that's another national conversation where we've had plenty of wake-up calls and plenty of uh, polls that show that, you know, broad uh, majorities of the American population, including gun owners, including NRA members, um, are in support of common sense gun violence prevention measures. Despite all of that, we, we still see inaction, and then that inaction is largely due to uh, conservatives in Congress stymieing efforts to, to move forward with those kinds of common-sense steps. Uh, you know, as we have that, that largely unproductive and incredibly frustrating conversation around gun violence prevention, um, too often um, there is a, a, a pivot by opponents of those kinds of common sense measures to, oh, well, we're just talking about people with mental illness, or, oh, we're just talking about, you know, maybe we just need to make sure that we can keep guns out of the hands of of people with mental illness. Well, sure, let's make sure that we're having a conversation about policies that make sure that only people who should have access to firearms have that access, but it it really um, completely misses the picture, and I think in a lot of ways stigmatizes people with mental illness and mental health challenges makes it seem like they're all criminals or they're all, you know, people who are out there committing some kind of mass murder. Nothing could be further from the truth. Um, And the reality, as you noted, is that people with disabilities, people with mental health impairments um, are actually much, much, much more likely to themselves be the victims um, of crime and violence than they are to be the perpetrators. Mm. But but if we we take the... um the being uh, more likely to be victims of police violence, for example, even that is really not the end of that narrative. What usually happens once disabled people are incarcerated, talk, talk a little bit about that. Even That's still not the end of the narrative for them. Definitely not the end of the narrative. It really is just the beginning. So um, once someone with a disability has been swept up into the criminal justice system through, uh, you know, an interaction with police, um, you know, maybe it's someone who's homeless, um, uh, who, who, you know, gets uh, swept up through a quality of life sweep or because they're, um, you know, sidewalk sitting or panhandling, often that, you know, ends up with police being the ones who, who bring people in, even though they, they haven't really done anything wrong except to, to violate one of those kinds of status offenses, which really amount to nothing more than the criminalization of poverty, once someone gets swept up into the system, um, uh, they then uh, typically are going to interact with the courts at some point. Um, but the lack of accessibility and and failure to provide needed accommodations to people with disabilities as required by the Americans with Disabilities Act, the ADA, are widespread across this country. People who are deaf are routinely denied interpreters in court proceedings. In some states, courts are even permitted to charge people money for their own interpreters. Um, 
denial of interpreters can have horrible consequences for people who get swept up into the system. I'll tell you a story about a woman named Christine Stein. She's a deaf resident of Jamestown, North Dakota. She called 911 using a video relay system. She was asking for help because a man uh, was in crisis in her apartment. He was threatening to take his own life. But when the cops showed up, they ended up arresting her because they didn't give her an interpreter and they denied her an interpreter throughout the process. She ended up being charged uh, for something she hadn't do hadn't done and and wasn't able to clear up the whole situation and, and get out of that cycle of being court involved um, until she was finally able to meet with a sign language interpreter two days before her next court appearance. So um, you know lack of accommodations um, uh, can lead not just to wrongful arrests but also in some cases to wrongful convictions. And then if you're an individual with a disability, behind bars, whether in jail or you've been sentenced to something and you're in prison, um, people with disabilities are all too often deprived of needed medical care as well as basic services, supports, and accommodations, despite the fact that the ADA requires that they be provided. Let, um, let me stop you right there, because you just said something really important, and, and, and I want um, our listeners to, to really catch, because I could, I could hear someone saying, well, they're being deprived medical care like they just won't give it to them. What exactly do you mean to the private medical care? Walk, walk us through that. Well, when you talk to lawyers who uh, try to help people with disabilities behind bars gain access to the, the basic rights that, that they um, have but that, which aren't being enforced, you hear, and actually there's a, a terrific and staggering report from the AVID Prison Project that was released earlier this summer. That's the Amplifying Voices of Inmates with Disabilities Prison Project. They document one case example after another of people uh, behind bars with disabilities who are denied needed medications, even denied prosthetic limbs. So you've got people crawling around their cells um, or, you know, unable to, to get into uh, their bed or onto the toilet. Um, inmates with cognitive disabilities who are unable to access treatment because they can't fill out the written request forms. Um, uh, they, they even document stories of, of inmates who sustain injuries because of lack of accessible showers, lack of accessible toilets, and other kinds of physical accommodations that they need. Um, I mean, the stories go on and on. They're really, really quite haggering. But then you know, a critical piece uh, of this whole conversation is about solitary. Many people with disabilities are held in solitary confinement and often um, as a substitute for appropriate accommodations. People can be held for days, for weeks, for months, even for years in some case. Um, and as the tragic case of Kaylee Browder, um, the 16-year-old uh, uh, teenager from the Bronx, uh, brought to light uh, a couple of years back, even short stays in solitary confinement can have devastating and long-lasting consequences. This is especially the case for people with disabilities, and particularly for people with mental disabilities whose conditions can deteriorate rapidly um, and who can suffer serious consequences for the rest of their lives. Now, this, this, this treatment um, that, that um, is, is for the lack of a better word, horrific, is it something that's systematic? Is it intentional? Or is this part of our ignorance um, beholden to uh, policies of the past? 
think it's both. I think it's it's absolutely both. To some extent, um, a lack of providing reasonable accommodations can result from uh, correctional employees and, and prison guards and others not being aware of their obligations and of, of prisoners' rights um, and jail inmates' rights under the ADA. Um, but there's also a, a particularly malicious um, and horrific side of the coin. And I don't mean to say that this is every correctional employee at every facility, but a 2015 report by Human uh, Human Rights Watch um, documented really what is undeniably an epidemic of what they call, quote, unnecessary, excessive, and even malicious use of force in American prisons and jails, particularly targeting inmates with mental health conditions. And that report, which is worth reading, but you know, you got to be sitting down when you look at it because it is really just absolutely horrific. Um, it describes an array of just horrible, horrible um, tactics, including the use of chemical sprays and electric stun devices, inmates being strapped to beds and chairs for days at a time, physical violence that results in inmates having their jaws, their noses, their ribs broken, even second-degree burns, damage to their internal organs, even inmates dying behind bars because of this kind of um, uh, horrific treatment. So while some of it... um, may stem from lack of awareness about um, uh, obligations under the ADA, um, and and some of it may stem from, um, similar to the policing conversation that we were having just a few minutes ago, a lack of appropriate understanding of how to communicate with inmates with disabilities. For example, someone maybe who has uh, cognitive impairment and or, or has a hearing impairment might not be able to communicate or might not understand um, the instructions being given and might not follow orders, and, and use of force can come into play to punish someone for something that isn't their fault and wasn't intentional, and that can result in this kind of behavior. Um, so it, it really it calls for um, a, a, a comprehensive review of what's happening behind bars, um, uh, and you know, training will be uh, a, a very important piece of the uh, the puzzle. Training at every single step of the system, but we really can't stop there and say, "Oh, look, we checked the box; we're good to go because everyone's been trained." We need to have a comprehensive conversation about how to end the mass incarceration of Americans with disabilities 26 years after the signing of the Americans with Disabilities Act and how to appropriately invest in community-based services so that there really are community-based alternatives and, and um, we aren't just in a place where mass institutionalization persists um, but hidden from, from public sight. Now, um, I know the report also states that this phenomenon is widespread could in that it's both at the state and well at federal level. How, how does essentially two different uh, prison systems um, run this parallel track when it comes to the plight of disabled um, inmates? So um, about 10% of our nation's prison population is behind bars in federal facilities. The rest are behind bars in state um, uh, prisons and locally operated jails. Um, so in, in many ways, while there is a federal piece of this, um, it's mostly uh, states and localities who need to be stepping up their uh, attention to and enforcement of the Americans with Disabilities Act and its obligations when it comes to treatment of people behind bars, the need to provide accommodations and so forth. 
Um, so it, it, it really is in many ways um, a, a state uh, and local conversation that we need to be having, that the feds have a role to play in. The Department of Justice has been a leader in a lot of ways, and, and President Obama's administration more broadly, um, in communicating to states and localities their obligations uh, when it comes to complying um, with federal law in the criminal justice context. Um, but actually something that the Center for American Progress has called for um, is establishing an office of disability within the Department of Justice um, to help states and cities take the steps that they need to, to comply with the ADA, to implement policies that keep people with disabilities out of jails and prisons, to improve and ensure not just humane but um, adequate treatment and provision of accommodations and so forth for the people who are in the system. Um, so a, a big piece of the puzzle will be um, the feds basically helping out states and cities in doing what is not just the right thing to do, um, but is really also the smart thing to do. Um, since we know that this was not an issue um, raised at the recent Republican convention in Cleveland, and I'm guessing it's not going to be front and center at, on the Democratic platform or, or, or um, raised in Philadelphia this week, um, nor is it going to be raised in the campaign trail by anybody regardless of office who's running. How does the Center for American Progress keep this or raise it? I shouldn't say keep it, raise it uh, to the public level, to this something that, that we're talking about. At one time we didn't talk about tough on crime. Now we're talking about the, 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 um, how insane tough on crime is. So how do you get this issue to that level? Well, I have to say, you know, um, uh, last week, as I mentioned, uh, the Center for American Progress partnered with an array of leading disability organizations and criminal justice um, organizations to pull together an event with the White House at the, at the White House um, with an array of leaders from all of those different vantage points. Um, Valerie Jarrett herself delivered opening remarks about how we it is long past time to end the mass incarceration of And Valerie Jarrett is? She, um, she is a senior advisor to President Obama and has been uh, a key player in uh, the administration's efforts to reform the criminal justice system to the extent that, that they have the authority to do within um, uh, uh, their power as the executive. So, you know, the fact of their holding that event and the fact of all of these key players coming together to say, you know what, this conversation is overdue, but it is also incredibly timely because as uh, key policymakers continue to, uh, to debate criminal justice reform, in Congress and in states and cities across the U.S., now is the time to be waking up and realizing we need to apply a disability lens across every single aspect of the system. Um, and, and I have to say that event, which was just such a productive and um, robust uh, discussion, it lasted half a day, it barely even began to scratch the surface. And that's both because this is an incredibly complex set of issues and set of intersections, um, but it's also because there was so much interest and passion and dedication among the voices and the perspectives in that room um, uh, hungry to have this conversation now. Um, and that made me incredibly optimistic that that was only going to be the beginning, that those folks uh, and we and the White House and the Department of Justice and Congress um, and policymakers at every level of government um, have our work cut out for us, and we are hopeful looking ahead to um, the months and the remaining um, uh, uh, 
portion of the administration, but then ahead to 2017 with a new Congress and a, a new um, uh, occupant in the White House, um, that this is going to be on the agenda because it, it absolutely must be. Rebecca Vallis from the Center for American Progress. Um, as you wrote, uh, and I'm quoting you, uh, because this is an issue that is not only unjust, uh, unethical, and cruel, it's also expensive. It's insane. We can just go on and on and on. Um, I want to thank you for being on the public rally today. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's always a pleasure to be on the show. And we'll, and we'll definitely have you back as you raise another issue for the public consciousness. So thank you so much for the work that you're doing. Thank you. That was Rebecca Vallis from the Center for American Progress. Coming up, my closing remarks. And now for my closing remarks. If you watched the first day of the Democratic Convention, you would have witnessed the uproar led by the Bernie or Bus contingency. This is a group who feels strongly that Senator Bernie Sanders had been cheated out of the nomination and have stated either their candidate received the Democratic nomination or they will sit on their hands come November. Though the sentiments seem heartfelt and sincere, they are reflective of a self-righteous arrogance that still leads to an apathetic impulse that has marred American society for some time. Ironically, not voting is still voting. It's voting for what one desires least. Granted, the aforementioned example represents selective apathy, but apathy nonetheless. In its myriad forms, apathy has been a harmful corrosive, methodically destroying our democratic values. It may very well be the greatest existential threat to our democratic republic form of government. Apathy poses a larger threat to society than terrorism, illegal immigration, or Wall Street oligarchs. If left unchecked, sustained apathy could lead to chronically bad government, political malfeasance, and the erosion of communication between government and its people. For more than 50 years, voter participation has largely been on a downward trajectory. What appeared in 2008 to be a hopeful sign that would change the direction of voter participation would later be viewed as the outlier in an undeniable trend of decline. In what the New York Times cited as the worst voter turnout in 72 years, the 2014 midterm elections was an opus dedicated to apathy. No state reached 60% in terms of voter turnout, and the three largest states, California, Texas, and New York, had turnouts below 33%. Large swaths of the electorate have opted not to participate, yet the anger, passion, and frustration we currently witness somehow belies that reality. With a Shays' rebellion-like fervor, people have taken to the streets in ways not seen since the 1960s, but an undeniable incongruence exists between those passions and actual participation at the ballot box. How long can we continue on our collective apathetic pace? equating the sound bites that meet with our suppositions as fact, while dismissing those that fail to correspond as nothing more than hyperbolic propaganda. No matter how virtuous the Bernie or Bus group appears, their path does not lead toward that more perfect union. One final note, we will be taking a holiday for the month of August. We will resume broadcasts in September. In the meantime, we will air selective archive broadcasts from Season 1. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. 
You can contact me at Byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. And for those who would like to hear the archive broadcasts, you can find those at our website, which is publicmorality.com. That's our show for today. The Public Morality is produced by WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at the Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams.